It's good to see you as we are actually in uh, the third week of this series that we've been journeying through that's called Formed. And if you are just joining us, basically what we're doing in this series is we're kind of doing a little bit of a high-level overview of an incredible book in the New Testament, the book of Romans. And so we've been kind of journeying through that a little bit together. And, uh, and so as we jump into week three, I actually just want to go ahead and get right into it. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you, if you would go ahead and open that up right now to Romans chapter six. Uh, that is where we're going to be looking today, Romans chapter six. And so if you are in the room right now and you need a Bible, uh, the Bible's under the chairs. You're going to find Romans chapter six on page 785 in those Bibles. So feel free to use those if you uh, didn't bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible on your device. And let me say that if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to just take one of those. You can make that a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have that. And let me just say too, if you're, if you're joining us online, and so if you're connecting with live stream, like Jordan said, uh, we're so glad you're able to be with us. And uh, so thanks so much for prioritizing, kind of staying connected in this series and doing that this way. But I also want to encourage you, why don't you get your Bible open too and get to Romans chapter six. And so whether you're joining us online or whether you're in the room, let's all get to Romans chapter six uh, kind of together. So hopefully you got that there uh, in front of you. So as you're finding that and as you're opening up your Bibles, uh, let me just give you a very, very quick recap of what we have discovered up to this point before we jump into Romans chapter six. So uh, if you've missed the series, if you're just kind of tuning in, here's basically just kind of a, a real abbreviated overview of what we've discovered so far. So the first thing we discovered in our first week is this, is we said that God actually has an ultimate goal for our life. And that goal is that we are going to be, that, that he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. So basically we said this, we said God actually has an ultimate goal for every single one of our lives. He actually has a desire for us. And we said that goal is not simply to make our lives more comfortable. We said that goal is not simply that we become more religious people who attend church more often. We said that goal is not just to keep us out of hell. And even though those are all good things, we said that's not God's ultimate goal for our lives. And we said, what is his ultimate goal? And the goal is this, that we would be conformed to the image of his son, to Jesus Christ. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we looked at that very passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so the word conformed there literally means to be formed or molded or stamped into the image of something. We used a very simple illustration. You might remember Pastor Seth had a lump of, a lump of Play-Doh and he had a mold. And he said, you know, if you think about a lump of Play-Doh and if you want to take that and you want to press it into the mold of something else, it's going to take on the form. It's going to be conformed or pressed into the image of that mold. And we said in the very same way, God's ultimate desire for our life is that we would be conformed or formed or transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, that we would act like, that we would think like, that we would be motivated like, that we would love like the person of Jesus. That's God's desire for our life. And so we said, man, that's a really, that's a really great goal. That sounds all really wonderful. But we said, but there's a big problem. There's a big problem. And many of us know this, but last week we talked about this. We said sin is our greatest problem. 
And sin has a way of inhibiting us from God's ultimate goal for our lives. And so uh, last week we said, hey, it's not always the most popular idea uh, in our culture, but the Bible is very clear on this, uh, that sin is, uh, sin is very real. Sin is a huge problem uh, for all of us, and it's more destructive and it's more serious than we might think. I actually love the way Pastor Seth drew this out last week. And I remember he said that all throughout the Bible, the Bible's gonna talk about sin, and one of the ways it's gonna describe it is it's gonna say that sin has a hardening effect on us, that sin hardens us or it calluses us, that it gives us hard hearts. And, and basically we said that what sin does is it desensitizes us and it makes us no longer pliable to the desires and to the voice of God in our lives. And so in the same way, if you took a lump of Play-Doh and you put it out in the air, eventually it's gonna become hardened our hearts in the atmosphere of sin will become hardened. We're no longer pliable to the desires of God. And so we talked about that, but here's the good news of Romans, what we've been talking about. So God has a goal for our lives. Sin gets in the way of that goal. But here's the third thing. We said that the gospel, which is the good news, which we talked about last week, of Jesus' conquering kingship, that Jesus has come and he has defeated sin once and for all. He has dealt with our biggest problem and he is now the ruling king who offers us eternal life. We said that good news is the power that brings salvation and brings transformation. And so we talked about that and we said, here's the good news. The Bible's gonna tell us, the Bible's gonna tell us that even though we were stuck in our biggest problem, which is sin, God conquered sin for us through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of my favorite verses in all, if you guys have been reading through the book of Romans, some of you guys have been doing this, one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Romans is right here in Romans chapter five, where it says, but God demonstrates his own love, uh, love for us in this, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love that verse because what it tells us is that when we were stuck in our biggest problem of sin, not able to do anything to get ourselves out of it, God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for us to conquer sin. And here's the awesome thing about that. The Bible's gonna tell us that God dealt with our biggest problem definitively, that he dealt with sin comprehensively, past, present, and future. All sin is done away with because of Jesus Christ. In fact, he's gonna say later in Romans chapter five, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so here's what the gospel is gonna say. The more we sin... The more God's grace increases for those of us who follow Jesus. That the more we fail, that grace will continue to abound. That where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Now, let me just say real quick that everything I've said up to this point is nothing new. It's just a very quick recap of what we've talked about so far. But this is going to lead us up to chapter 6. Now, here's the thing. Just to be clear, what we are told so far is this. We are told that each and every single one of us has a big problem. Our big problem is ultimately sin, and there's nothing that we could do to get ourselves out of it, and so Jesus is the one who's conquered sin, and so that means that there's nothing that we can do, there's no good deeds that we can do that will earn God's forgiveness. That's what the Bible told us. And then the Bible told us this, that we cannot out-sin God's grace, that where sin increases, grace is going to increase all the more, all right? You're like, is that what it's saying? That is what it's saying. Sound like a sweet deal? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And that's gonna lead us right to chapter six. So let's jump in together. Chapter six, verse one. The Apostle Paul is gonna continue in this train of thought. And here's what he says. He says, so what shall we say then? So in response to chapters one to five, he's like, so what do you guys think so far? And then he goes on and he says this. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? 
All right, now I wanna stop here for a second because this is really important what Paul's gonna say right here. Paul is anticipating, remember he just preached the gospel. He just talked about how God has a goal for our life and how sin gets in the way and so God dealt with our sin. And now where sin increases, grace is going to abound all the more, right? That's what he just said. So now he's gonna pick up and he's gonna anticipate a seemingly logical, a seemingly logical conclusion, but it's actually a very common misconception that many people have when they hear the gospel. In fact, this is a common misconception that maybe even many of us in this room who, who are followers of Jesus might have when we hear the gospel. And what is that misconception? Well, it's basically this, that because I cannot out God's grace, that means that I should probably just go sin more so that I can experience more of God's grace, right? So is this basically saying that if I accept Jesus, I get, I get a get out of hell free card, and then God also gives me a credit card of grace that has absolutely no limitation, and I can just go sin it up and swipe that card because where you know sin increases, grace increases all the more. And for some of us, we might think that. We might think, oh, that's what God says. So let me just get this straight. I'm really good at sinning, right? And honestly, sometimes I kind of like it. And God's really good at forgiving sin. Well, sounds like it's a match, right? Everyone's doing what they love. I'm sinning and he's forgiven. This is a great deal. Let's just keep going on this. And here's what's going to happen. Paul's going to say, that sounds logical and that seems logical, but is that right? Is that right? What do you guys think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Is that right? Here's what Paul's going to say. Here you go, right here. By no means is what he says. Okay, so in other words, what he's saying here is not that. It's not that. That's not the right way to think. And this is a very strong phrase that he uses here. In fact, some of you have different translations of the Bible, and it might translate it this way. It might say, God forbid, or it might say, may it never be, or it might say, of course not. Now, all of these are translations of a very, very strong idiom in the New Testament Greek language, and it's actually this phrase right here. It is the phrase, mejanoita, is what it is, mejanoita. And this is the strongest idiom of repudiation in the entire Greek New Testament. This is the starkest possible rejection. This is the Apostle Paul basically saying, you could not be more wrong. Don't ever say that or think that again. It's kind of what he's saying. Or uh, like they say in West Virginia, uh, it's something like this. Paul's basically saying, that's about as dumb as a one-legged cat trying to bury a turd on an ice pond, all right? And apparently... All of West Virginia says that at the same time. So that's the thing. So, so, but it's basically he's saying, no, that's not it. Which, by the way, let me just say, pardon the language. If that language is offensive to you, I don't mean to use offensive language in the church. I didn't mean to say cat in front of you guys. But uh, <laughs> so let that sink in. But what Paul is saying in this passage is he's just saying that's wrong. No, that's wrong. And what Paul is saying is if you're arriving at this conclusion after you hear the gospel, if the conclusion is, well, that means that I can just go on living my life like I always have, and I can just keep sinning like I always have, and God's just gonna forgive me, so, so I might as well just keep going. What Paul is saying is, if that is the conclusion that you're arriving to at the end of the gospel, you have jumped on the wrong train of logic. And he's gonna say, now, he's, what he's gonna do next is he's gonna blow that logic to pieces, and he's gonna say, let me get you on the right tracks. You see, because what Paul's gonna say is this. He's gonna say, when the gospel truly gets a hold of a person's life, that there is a logical and necessary transformation that must ensue as part of that reality. That's what he's about to say. And what I wanna show you is right in this passage we're about to read. I'm gonna show you, it's right in this passage. What the Apostle Paul is gonna tell us is he's gonna say 
that in order for a person who follows Jesus to grow in their conformity to Jesus Christ, to look more like Jesus, and in order for that person to overcome and find victory over sin, he's gonna say that it involves growing in three very specific areas. So Paul's gonna show us right in this passage, he's gonna say, in order for us to continue to grow into the image of Jesus, and in order for us to grow spiritually and to overcome sin in our lives, he's gonna say there's three areas that you need to continue to grow in. And what are they? Well, here they are to show you, and then we'll walk through them. He's gonna say, listen, we need to grow in our knowing. So Paul's gonna say, in order for us, in order for us to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, in order for us to overcome sin, there are some things we need to know. We need to know some things. But then he's also gonna say we need to grow in our counting, that in order for us to grow spiritually, there's some things we need to count. And we're gonna see this in the passage. And then thirdly, he's gonna say that we need to grow in our offering, that, that we need to offer some things in order to grow in our spiritual walk. Now you're like, what do you mean by those things? Well, let me just show you. Like I said, all three of these come right out of this passage. So let's just start with the first one. Let's talk about knowing. So Paul's gonna say, here's where it begins. If you wanna overcome sin and find victory in your life, and if you wanna grow into the conformity of Jesus Christ, it begins here. You need to know some things about yourself. You need to know some things. And what are they? Well, look at verse two. Here's what Paul, or I'm sorry. Uh, if you look in, in Romans chapter six, I want you to notice just real quick, if you glance down from verses three to 10, and I just kind of have it highlighted here, I want you to notice that over and over again, Paul repeats this idea that there's things that we need to know. And so in chapter three, he's gonna say, or don't you know? And then in uh, verse six, he's gonna say, for we know. And then in verse nine, he's gonna say, for we know. So this is a theme here. So Paul's gonna say, there's some stuff that if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know. And what are those things? Okay, so now go up to verse two and look what he says. He says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? All right, he goes on in verse three and he says this. He says, or don't you know so there it is again. Paul's saying there's some things that if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know. Don't you know, he says, that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So Paul's gonna come in and he's gonna say, so, so you guys hear me say where grace increases or where sin increases, grace increases all the more. So does that mean we should go out sinning? He says, by no means. We shouldn't do that at all. Why? He says, because we know something. And he says in this passage, he says, don't you know? Don't you know? As to which maybe some of us in this room who follow Jesus, we go, actually, I didn't know. I actually didn't know this. And for some of you, when I read this and when you look at this, you say, you know what? I actually still don't know. What does that even mean? when it says that we are baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into Christ, that means we're baptized into his death. So Paul's gonna say, we need to know some stuff, and one of the things that we need to know, if you're a follower of Christ in this room, if you're a follower of Christ who's watching right now, is that we are in Christ Jesus. We were baptized in Christ Jesus. Now again, some of you might be like, that sounds so weird, what does that even mean? So let me see if I can demystify this a little bit, all right? So the word baptized, when we look at that, I think for a lot of us, what we tend to think of is we tend to think of water baptism, of someone getting dunked in water. And that's actually accurate because the Bible does talk about that, it talks about the importance of being baptized as a symbol of your decision to follow Jesus. But here's what I want you to understand, and this is where maybe for us it gets a little confusing. The word baptism or baptize in the original Greek language, 
It actually was a very common word that would have, used back in this, would have been used back in this time. So it actually had no religious connotations at all. The word itself literally just means, here's all it meant. It just meant to immerse, or it meant to put something into something. That's all that baptism means. And so here's a very, very simple analogy just to make my point. So this PowerPoint clicker that I have in my hand, okay, so I, I use this to advance my slides whenever we're together. Let's just say that I took this PowerPoint clicker and let's just say that I immersed it, or let's say that I put it into, okay, here's the word, all right? If, if we're thinking like a first century person, this would be the word. Let's say that I baptized this into my pocket. Now, that sounds weird if I said that. I baptized my PowerPoint clicker in my pocket. It sounds weird to us, but to them, that's all the word meant. I'm putting something into something, right? I am immersing something into something. Now, let me just ask you a question. When this goes into my pocket, What's true about this PowerPoint clicker, what's true about my pocket is now true about this PowerPoint clicker, right? So, so where my pocket goes positionally is where the PowerPoint clicker goes. So to, to ask you a question right now, where is my PowerPoint clicker? Where, where is it? Just go ahead and point to it. This isn't, this isn't magic. You're not like, is he tricking me? Is he gonna pull it out from behind my ear or something? No, it's right here. It's here. Why is it here? Because it's in my pocket. It's in my pocket. Now let's say I go over here. I walk over here. Where's my PowerPoint clicker? Right, it's over here. It's, it's, why did it go over here? Is it because it moved? Well, kinda, it's because my pocket moved. And because it's in my pocket, what's true about my pocket is true about the PowerPoint clicker. All right, now let's say that this afternoon after the service was done, I hopped on an airplane and I flew to Florida, which I desperately wish was happening, but it's not. All right, let's say that I did that, all right? And so where is my PowerPoint clicker gonna go if it's in my pocket? It's gonna go wherever I go. So if I'm 30,000 feet in the air and I'm wearing these pants and I have this pocket and the PowerPoint clicker's in my pocket, where's my PowerPoint clicker? It's 30,000 feet in the air. And if I land in Palm Beach, Florida, where's the PowerPoint clicker gonna be? It's gonna be in Palm Beach, Florida. Now, is that because this PowerPoint clicker has the ability in its own to get 30,000 feet in the air? No, it doesn't have the power to do that, but it's in my pocket. And what's true about my pocket is true about my pants. And what's true about my pants is true about my person. And where my pants go, I go, usually, typically, right? And I'm just saying, that's how it all works. Now, here's the, now it's a very simple analogy, but here's what I want you to understand. The Bible's gonna say, in a very real sense, more real than you can imagine, that the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible is going to say that you are baptized into Christ Jesus. You're in him. You're in him. And what does that mean? It means what's true about him is true about you. It means that the things that are, that, 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 are, that are accurate about him are now imputed onto you. Why? Because because of you? No, you can't do it, but he did it. And because he did it, you're in him and you're identified with him. Right? And the Bible's gonna say that. Now, here's the crazy thing. The Bible's gonna say about the follower of Jesus Christ, the most common phrase that it's gonna use to describe the Christian through the New Testament is this, is it's gonna say that you're in Christ. Over 100 times in the New Testament, it's gonna say that followers of Jesus are in Christ Jesus, that they are in him, that they are in, in Jesus. It's gonna say this all over the place. What's that talking about? And this might sound totally obscure, like an obscure concept to you, but I just wanna tell you that understanding and unlocking that all the incredible uh, just promises that God has for us comes in understanding this reality that you are in Christ Jesus if you are a follower of him. And that means what's true about him is now true about you. 
And you're like, well, can you give me some examples of what that means? Yeah, let's look. Look at the passage. Here's he's going to go on to say in verse 4. He's going to say, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So he's going to say, well, Jesus died. Jesus died and Jesus resurrected. So what's that mean about you if you're in Christ Jesus? Well, we know. See, there he goes again. He's always talking about knowing stuff. For we know that our old self was crucified. It was. I don't remember being crucified. Right, that's because you're in him, and he was crucified. And what's true about him is true about you. You know that your old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Here's what the Bible's gonna say if you are in Christ Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus. I know not everyone's a follower of Jesus in this room. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, here's what the Bible's gonna say. This is what's true about you. You are in Christ. And what's that mean? You died. And you're like, I don't remember dying, right? That's because he died and you're in him. He was crucified. And when he was crucified, he put sin to death. And that means that for you, sin has been put to death. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have overcome, you have conquered sin. I don't remember conquering sin. You're in Christ and he did. And that means that you're dead. You are dead to the power of sin. It's, it's, what's, it's a reality that is true about you right now in Christ Jesus. Now, just to be clear, let me be super clear, what the Bible isn't saying is it's not saying that sin is dead. Sin is not dead. It is not dead. It's very much alive. And that means that as followers of Jesus, we're still tempted by sin. We still struggle with sin. We still hear the voice of temptation. Let me just ask you, just maybe to prove my point, How many of you who are followers of Jesus right now, and even if you're watching online, how many of us who are followers of Jesus would say, yeah, we still struggle with sin? Show of hands. How many say we struggle? Okay, good. Some of you didn't raise your hands, and so you got this thing. You're you're killing it. That's great. So we praise God for that. But uh, no, the truth is we all struggle with sin. Why? Because it's still alive. It's still alive. But here's the point. You're dead to it. Does that mean that sin's dead? No, no. It means that it's not your slave. You're not a slave to it anymore. It's not your master. Why? Because you're dead. When did I die? In Christ Jesus, because you're in him, remember? And so the Bible's gonna say that we died, but also he's gonna say, for if we died with Christ, we believe that we also are going to live with him. Why? Because he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. That means that you also have new life in you. You're like, I do? I don't remember that. You're in Christ Jesus. What's true about him is true about you. For we know, there it is again, we gotta know some stuff, he says, We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died for sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so what he's gonna say is this. He's gonna say, listen, you're in Christ Jesus, and that means because you're in Christ Jesus, what's true about him is true about you. And part of what that means is it means that you're dead to sin, and it means that now because Christ rose from the dead, you're alive to God. You're alive to God. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, these are realities that are true about you. They're true about you. Even now, these things are true about you. Previously, you didn't have power over sin, but now you do. Why? Because you can do it? Because you can get yourself 30,000 feet in the air? No, because you're in Jesus. And that's a reality that's true about you. If I could, if I could uh, condense it down in my own words, I know some of this sounds really abstract to some of you, but if I could condense it down in my own words, I think what the Apostle Paul is basically saying is this. I think he's saying that, listen, it is not impossible for Christ followers to sin anymore. It's not that it's impossible. It's just that it's incongruent. It's incongruent with what's now true about you in Jesus Christ. That, that's what he's saying. It just doesn't line up with who, with who you are. 
And so Paul's gonna say, listen, if you wanna grow spiritually and you wanna overcome sin in your life, part of it is that you need to know some things about yourself. And if you don't know these realities, it might keep you, it might keep you from the transformation that God desires. Um, like I said, I know this sounds kind of abstract, so let me see if I can put a kind of a simple illustration to this. So um, uh, th- when I was reading this passage, it actually reminded me of a story that made headlines about a decade ago. Some of you guys might remember this. It was back in 2010. And there's this couple down in the South who had this house. They had actually bought this house from some family members, and it was one of these houses that had been in the family for generations. And so this, this young couple bought the house, and, um, and they moved into the house, and Anyway, it's a very modest house, kind of a low-income family. And anyway, this family found themselves in a, time, in a place where they were experiencing some serious financial trouble. Uh, they had uh, tried to, uh, a new business venture, and it had failed. And, uh, and so they were uh, just barely scraping by. They had to take out a second mortgage on their house, and they were at a point where they were just living on food stamps, trying to, trying to scrape by. And anyway, they couldn't keep up with the payments on the house, and so the bank was going to foreclose and, and take the house back. And so this family was you know, desperately trying to save the house, couldn't save the house, and so they were packing up all their stuff to leave. And of course, the house had been in the family for generations, and so there was all kinds of clutter and junk that hadn't been cleaned out of the house. So they went up to the attic, and they found this big old trunk in the attic, and they opened it, and there's a bunch of junk, old junk in there. And amongst all the stuff that was in there, there was this stack of comic books, these old comic books. And at first glance, they were just like, I don't know, just like some kind of old, outdated, irrelevant, kind of trashy, you know, old comic books that we could basically just throw away. But they knew better than that because they knew that comic books can be worth money. So they said, well, these look pretty old, so why don't we take them to get appraised? They took them to a, a comic book appraiser, and he was going through the comics, and he was looking at them, and he came across one comic in specific, and it was this one right here. It's Action Comics number one. Um, and if you guys don't know what this is, this is, the first, this is the first Superman comic book in existence. And uh, so the, the, the guy that was appraising this, the comic book appraiser, after he saw it, and probably after he had a, a little accident, uh, he appraised this, and it ended up selling for $1.5 million dollars. And now here's the crazy thing about that story. So this family, of course, they were able to get their house back and then some and all these things. Now here's, here's the crazy thing about this story. I just think this is nuts. This comic book was in the attic of their house that whole time. I mean, for generations, that thing was sitting up there. And meanwhile, you have this family who's scraping by, who's barely making it paycheck to paycheck, living on food stamps, just scraping by, when all the time there is a $1.5 million reality that is above them in the attic. It's just untapped in. They just didn't know it. They just didn't know what was available to them. And listen, can I just tell you that I think that sadly, that is a picture of the way that many followers of Jesus live. I think that's it. I think we live in our spiritual lives and we sometimes are stuck in spiritual growth and we're barely scraping by in our victory over sin and, and listen, and all the while, there are these eternal life-giving realities about who you are in Jesus Christ that are not being cashed in on. And, and we're, we're scraping by in our spiritual life when all the time there are million-dollar truths about who you are that, are that are right there and are accessible to you if you would just know the truth about who God says you are because you're in Christ Jesus. These realities are true. Listen, I know for some of you who are here, 
You're hearing me talk about this stuff and we're reading this passage. And to you, this just seems like some old, obscure, biblical truth, some weird theological concept, some abstract thing, some old, outdated church language that has nothing to do with your real life outside of this room. Listen, I'm just telling you that knowing these realities is the key to overcoming sin in your life and growing into the conformity of the Son, the son of Jesus Christ. And we gotta cash in on them. We gotta cash in on them, which actually leads me to the second thing. And the second thing is this. So he's gonna say we need to grow in knowing some stuff, but then he's gonna say we also need to grow into counting some stuff. And like, what's that talking about? All right, well, right here in the passage, let's look, verse 11. Verse 11, he says, in the same way, so he says, now that you know this stuff, now that you know this stuff, he says, now you gotta count it. You gotta count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. Now here it is again, in Christ Jesus. So he's like, so now it's not enough just that you know these things. You actually have to count this stuff. Now the word count's actually a really interesting word in the original language. Some of you have different translations and it might say that you need to consider or you need to reckon. And the word there is actually, it's actually an accounting word. It's a banking word. And, uh, and literally, in the, uh, the Greek language, it's this word right here, and it means to put together with one's mind. It means to reckon or to occupy oneself with calculations. That's what it means. So basically, here's what it means. Do the math. You need to do the math. That now, this, hey, this is what God said about you. This is what he says is true about you. And even though you might not feel like it's true, and even though it might not seem like it's true, and even though it's hard for you to understand that it's true, it's true. And so that means that you need, to, you need to sit down, you need to calculate that, and you need to do the math, you need to factor it in, right? This is the, this is the believing part. And I think the truth is, I think m- many of us know this, it's possible to know something theoretically, but for it to not hit us practically, for it to impact us, for us not to believe it and let it transform our lives. Maybe the best illustration I've heard on this actually comes from a guy named Dennis McCallum, uh, McCallum wrote an awesome book called Walking in Victory. I'd recommend it to you. It's actually a journey through the book of Romans as well. And uh, he gives us, re- he, talking about Romans chapter six, he actually gives this really great analogy. I love it. He, he talks about, hypothetically, he talks about uh, this, this scenario where he said, imagine I have a friend. He said, and imagine that my friend, uh, after doing a variety of different crimes, is thrown into prison. And then he said, and imagine that the prison he's in is this really, really inhumane kind of situation. He says, so he's in a prison cell and it's more like a dungeon and uh, the, the situation is really kind of inhumane and so he's only given a bucket to go to the bathroom in the corner and every day he scratches line, tally marks into the wall, just lines into the wall to count down his time. He says, so imagine my friends in this terrible situation, completely inhumane and then 25 years of being in the situation, he's finally released, he's finally set free. And he says, so imagine I pick up my buddy from the situation, I get him in my car I say, hey, man, why don't you come live with me to get your feet on the ground? So come stay in my guest room. Now watch what he says. This is his illustration. He says, at home, things don't go as expected. My friend rarely leaves the guest room, and before long, I notice a smell coming from inside. So finally, I stop by, and I ask to come in, and he lets me into the room, and I'm horrified to see that he's been scratching lines on my freshly painted wall, and he's even soiled my trash can. Now what would you say in this situation? He says, I know what I would say. Hey, pal, haven't you overlooked something? You're not in prison anymore. He goes on, he says this. That's just what Paul is saying in this passage. You used to do these things when you were a prisoner because you had no alternative. And you can still do them 
It's possible to do these things, even though you're now free. But how, here it is. But how incongruous is that? How unbefitting. It's clear that my friend still sees himself as a prisoner. He says, now I could get heavy with him. I could threaten expulsion from the house, but this would be off target. I want him to stop his antisocial behavior, especially the bit with the trash can. But there's something more involved here. and There's something more involved than his behavior. He clearly doesn't realize his freedom. What a shame it would be if he changed his behavior because I threatened him, but he never changed his outlook. God wants us to understand what he has done to our identity, right? That we're in Christ Jesus. He wants us to experience this change increasingly in our lives, not through gritting our teeth or through fleshly self-effort based on a fear of rejection, but through the power of his transforming love. I love that. That's a great illustration. I think that's completely on target. See, because what he's saying is, look, I could get heavy-handed. I could be like, don't you ever do that again. That's the wrong thing. Remember what we just said? Where sin increased, grace increases all the more. We don't have to be afraid of that anymore. But what Paul is saying is he's not saying, should we go on sinning because grace increases, because God God says, stop doing that or else? No, no, no. He says, don't do that. Why? Because of who you are. It's incongruent with who you are. See, See, I think sadly, maybe for some of us who follow Jesus, we're still convinced that we're slaves to sin. We're just still convinced that that's true. For some of you, for those of us who follow Jesus, and again, I know not everyone follows Christ, but for some of you who are followers of Jesus, if I looked at you and I said, are you still a slave to sin? You would say, yes, I have no power over it. And I just want to tell you, you're wrong. That's not true. Why? Is that because you're stronger than sin? Is that because somehow you've, you've done enough? No, it's because you're in Christ Jesus. You're in him. And that means that, that you're, you're free from the slavery of sin. Does that mean you're going to struggle with it? Sure. Yeah, it does. But I want you to notice what this passage is going to say. Look, look what he says in verse 12. Therefore, do not let. Do not let. In other words, what he's saying is the only power that sin has in your life, if you're a follower of Christ, is what you let it have. That's it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. He said you can still listen to it, but you don't have to. You don't have to. There's a new reality about you that is available. And that leads me to the last thing that Paul's going to say. So he's going to say, man, how do we grow in the Christian life? How do we overcome sin and find victory? He's going to say, you got to know some stuff about who you are. And he says, and then you got to count it up, man. You got to like, you got to do the math on that. But then he's going to say this last thing. He's going to say, and then you got to, you got to offer yourself. You got to offer something. Now, what's that mean? All right, let's take a look. Verse 13, he says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So, so I want you to notice twice here, he talks about offering. He says, don't offer yourself to sin anymore. Don't offer yourself, but instead offer yourself to God. Offer yourself to him as an instrument. Now, the word offer is a really awesome word, by the way. It actually, some of your translations say present. And the word literally just means, it means to place yourself before something. It's a very passive term. It's basically this idea of placing yourself into the hands of someone or something else. So in the same way that an, um, that an instrument is placed into the hands of a musician, right, it's a very passive stance. It's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm inviting your power to work through me. That's, that's the idea. In the same way that a lump of clay is put in the hands of a master artist, 
That's the idea of presenting. He says presenting. And what he says here is fascinating. He says, so don't offer any part of yourself, any part of yourself to sin. Now, some of your translations there say, don't offer the members of your body to sin. And literally what that means, literally what that means is it means the members of your body, your body parts. So he says, so don't, don't give your body parts to sin anymore. Don't do that. Don't offer them. Don't present your body parts to sin. Some of you are like, that sounds really weird. What does that, what does that mean? Well, I think all of us probably kind of know what this means intuitively, that sin, when it tempts us, that basically what it's doing is it's, it, is it's inviting us to offer ourselves for the power of sin to work through us. And so, for example, just practically speaking, let's say that you're walking through the mall or you're walking down the hall at school or you're whatever, wherever you are, and that person walks past you, you know, that person who's dressed that way and who looks that way. Let's say that it's late at night and you're clicking around on the internet and there's an advertisement that pops up and it gets your mind thinking in a certain direction and, and now you're in that situation and, and temptation creeps in, like it often does because remember, sin's still alive. And so what happens in that moment? Well, temptation speaks to you, sin speaks to you. And what does sin say? Sin basically says this, hey, let me borrow your eyes. Let me just borrow your eyes. Let me, let me borrow your eyes to carry out this particular activity that I desire to see at work within you. Or let's say this. Let's say that you're at work or you're at school and there's an opportunity in front of you to fudge the numbers or to cut corners or to cheat or to take something that doesn't belong to you, but it just would be so much easier if you just had it in your possession. Now, what's going to happen in that moment? Well, you're going to feel temptation, right? You're going to hear the voice of sin. Why? Because it's still alive. Sin is still alive. And what's sin going to say? It's going to say, hey, let me borrow your hands for a second. Let me just use your hands. And you just, just cut the corner. Just, just take the thing. Just do it. And let me just borrow your hands. Or let's say that you overhear someone talking. And you hear, I mean, just this, oh man, this zinger of a piece of gossip, this juicy piece of gossip. And you're like, oh, I could be dangerous with that information, right? What's gonna happen in that moment? Well, you're gonna feel the temptation of sin. Why? Because sin's still alive. And what's it gonna say? It's gonna say, hey, let me borrow your mouth. Let me borrow your mouth for a minute. Let me borrow your thumbs so you can text whoever about this thing that you heard. Or let's say you're in a fight with somebody, fight with your spouse, and they say something, and you're locked and loaded, and you know just the right thing to say at just that moment that you know is going to destroy that person. You just know it, and you're like, and if I could just say it, it would end everything right now, and you just know it. What's sin say in that moment? Sin says, hey, let me borrow your tongue. Let me borrow your wit. Let me use that as an instrument so that I can, I can work in and through you. And here's what Paul says. He says, you need to know something. You're in Christ Jesus. You're dead to sin. You don't need to listen to that voice anymore. You are now alive in Christ. You're alive to God. So he says, you don't need to offer yourself to sin, but you just can offer yourself to God. You can offer the parts of your body to him. And so you can tell sin no. You can say no. And then what he's saying is, and you can say yes to God. I love the vision he's giving us because what he's saying is, listen, for those of us who follow Jesus, we have the power through, because we're in Christ Jesus, we have a power now to come before God and to say, God, I offer myself. I can't do it myself, but I offer myself to you. And so God, can, 
you use my eyes? Can you give me your eyes? Can you help me to see people the way you see people? Not as objects, but as dearly loved, made in your image, cared for by you. God, would you give me your eyes? Would, can I see the way you see? I wanna offer my eyes to you. God, I wanna offer you my hands. Here's my hands. I don't wanna use my hands to steal or to hurt or to take or to cheat. I wanna use my hands to help and to serve. God, here's my mouth. And man, my mouth, it can get me in trouble and it can cut down and it can mow down and it can hurt or it can bring life and it can bring truth and it can proclaim the gospel you use my mouth? And the Bible's gonna say we can offer ourselves to God as instruments, as instruments of righteousness. Why? Because sin no longer is your master. Because you're not under law, but you're under grace. So what do we do with a conversation like this? You're like, all right, this sounds good, but practically speaking, like, what do I do with this? And so let me end with some conclusions, just some simple conclusions. I'm gonna actually have the band come up, and as they settle in, we'll just talk about a few conclusions, and then we'll pray, and uh, it will be done. So conclusion number one. Conclusion number one, if you are a Christian, and again, I, I understand not everyone is a follower of Jesus who's here today, but if you are a Christian, God has changed you. He has on the deepest levels, at the deepest levels. And I just want you to know that that's true. That's true. And it might not feel true, and it might not seem true, and it might seem strange to you, and you might not even understand it all, but it's true, Right? If you're a Christian, you're in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What's true about him is true about you. And part of what that means is it means that you're dead to sin. Not that sin is dead, but you're dead to sin and you're alive to him, that you're alive to God. Now, here's the second thing. All right? As you know what God says about you, and as you count it to be true, and as you offer yourself to him accordingly, you will gradually, now this is a key word, gradually, not perfectly, not not at that moment, in a moment. Gradually, over time, we will be conformed to the image of Jesus. We will look more like him. We will look more like him. And I think it's really important that you understand this. This isn't overnight. It's not like we just, it's not like tomorrow, you're, you're done. I'm never sinning again. Now it's over now. That's not how it works. It's a gradual process that we need to continue to grow into this identity. Yeah, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, uh, 14 years ago, so 14 years ago in March, this, this month, uh, my wife and I got married 14 years ago. And I remember when we got married and I stood on that altar and I said, I do, I had really not a whole lot of understanding of what I was getting myself into, right? I just knew I wanted to marry this woman. And I remember we got married and I said, I do. And at that moment, 14 years ago, when I said, I do, there's all kinds of things about my identity that became real and became true. And a lot of them, I didn't even understand. I didn't even understand it at that moment. But there's things, listen, when I said I do, there's things legally that became true about me that I didn't even understand. Things that the, the government looked at me different. My, my, you know, the, my, the, the, the tax people looked at me different. All these things were true about me that I didn't even know were true about me. Relationally, things about me changed in that moment. Socially, things about me changed in that moment. Spiritually, the Bible says there's something weird spiritually that happened in that moment that we were now unified as one. We were husband and wife. And all of those things happened in that moment when I said I do. And I wasn't even aware of most of it when it happened, right? Now, here's the crazy thing. Even though my identity shifted in that moment, when I walked out of that church, I didn't feel any different. 
I didn't feel any different. I actually remember we got on the airplane to go on our honeymoon, and we looked at each other, and I was just like, you know, I had my ring on, and it felt kind of weird and new, and she had her ring on, and we were like, huh? And I remember I looked over at her, and I was like, I was like, hey, wife. <laughs> and she was like, hey, husband. <laughs> and she laughs like that sometimes. It's weird. And, uh, and I, I just remember we were like, we feel like we're faking it. We feel like we're faking it. Like, it's not, it's, it's so weird to us. And then I remember when we got home, some of you, if, if you got married, you remember this. I remember we got home, and for the first couple of months, it felt like we were playing house. It didn't even feel real. Like, I was like, I'm going to go mow the, mow the, the lawn, honey. <laughs> and she's like, okay, husband, you know, and we were just, we felt like we were playing house. And here's the crazy thing, is it, it took time. It took a lot of time to, to live into this new identity. What was true about us changed in that moment, but it took time to live in it. And I'll just tell you this, 14 years later in marriage, I'm still learning what it means to be a husband. I am still growing into this new identity that I was given on that day. And I just wanna tell you that if you're a follower of Jesus, that's how it works. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there's all kinds of things that you don't even know that are real and are true about you. And you need to grow in knowing those and you need to grow in counting those. And then you need to move into that over time. It's a gradual process. It's a gradual process. And then here's the third thing. One of the ways we do this, one of the ways we grow in knowing, counting, and offering is we do it in the context of community. Community. God has given us an incredible resource for us to grow, and it's each other. It's how we do it. Listen, we, t- we say this all the time, and I'm just going to say it again. I'm just going to say it probably until the day I'm dead. Spiritual maturity does not happen alone. It doesn't. It cannot not according to the Bible. We need each other to do this. Why do you think it is that we gather together every week like this and read the Bible and sing these songs? Is it because we're trying to check something off of a spiritual checklist so that we can please God? No, that's not it. The reason we come together is because we're desperate to know who God says we are. And we wanna, we wanna help each other know that and we want to help each other reckon that to be true. And then we want to offer ourselves to God. That's why we do it. That's why we do life groups. Why do we do the equipping division? Why would we take all this time so that we could grow in our knowledge about the things that God says about us? It's because we realize that these are million-dollar truths that have massive implications on our lives. We need each other. Listen, we need each other to help each other count this stuff up, to do the math. We, why, why do we do things like life groups? Why do we do things like disciple-making relationships? It's because we need each other to do the math. We have to do this. And sometimes it takes another person to come up beside you and say, you know, you know you're beating yourself up. You feel like you failed again. You feel like you're an utter failure. Let's do the math. Let's do the math. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. You're not saved because of your good works. You're saved because of what Jesus has done. And this is what's true about you. You're in Christ Jesus. And because you're in Christ Jesus, that means that you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. So let's get back up and let's keep going. Sometimes we need each other to do that. Let's tell you a few weeks ago, I needed someone to help me do some math. I remember, as actually probably more like a couple months ago, but time is relative. And I just remember I was, uh, I was, I was uh, beating myself up about something. I had reacted in a situation that wasn't the right way to react. I knew it wasn't the right way to react. And I just remember I felt so bad. It was a sinful reaction. I just remember feeling really bad about it. And I was beating myself up. I was like, man, I can't believe I have such a failure. And geez, I just can't seem to get it right. And I just was really beating myself up. And my friend said to me, he said, hey, can I, can I tell you something I read? I said, sure. He said, I was reading this commentary. And he said, the commentator said, to be disappointed in yourself 
is to have trusted in yourself. And I was like, wow, I needed to hear that right now. And, and what was he doing? Here's what he was doing. He was saying, listen, dude, let's do the math on this real quick. Let's do the math. Are you in Christ Jesus? Yep. Does that mean that you do it or he does it? He did it. All right, then. Let's, get, let's keep going. Let's keep going. I needed that. I needed that. We all need that. And then we have to grow an offering. And that happens in the context of community. And that, by the way, is what we're going to be digging into next week when we come together. You're not going to want to miss that because there's some awesome things the Bible has to say about what God can do in and through us together. Here's the last thing. This offer is for everyone. So listen, I know that as I've been talking, um, I've been addressing the follower of Jesus pretty much the entire time. And I know not everyone here follows Christ. Not everyone who's watching follows Jesus. Some of you are still investigating faith. You're still investigating Christianity. And if that's you, we say this all the time. I just wanna say it again. We count it such an honor and a privilege that you would let us be part of that investigation. You know, you could do anything you want with your time, but the fact that you're here is awesome. But I just want you to know that what God has on offer for you, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life and transformation to be made in the likeness of his son, that it's an offer for you. And the way, that, the way that you embrace that is not by coming to church more and being you know, more of a, you know, just disciplining yourself and becoming a better person. It's by putting your faith in Jesus Christ because when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that means that you're in him and that means that there's realities that are true about you. And you can do that today. You can do that today. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you might walk out of this building today and you might not even feel any different. I'm telling you, the moment you put your faith in him, there's all kinds of realities that are gonna be true about you. And God wants to invite you and he wants to offer you into this new life. Let's pray together. Well, God, I wanna say thank you so much that you have given us the hope of uh, not just being saved, not just, you know, that, uh, that our sins are forgiven and we get to go to heaven one day, but you've given us a hope of transformation right here, right now. So, would you help us to be a group of people who continue to know what you said is true about us, to define ourselves not by what we think or what others say, but by what you said? Would you help us to count that? Even right now as we worship and sing, would you help us to do the math in our mind about what this means? And then to continually, not perfectly, but continually offer ourselves to be used by you. So God, thank you for the freedom that you've given us. Thank you that we're in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.